The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last post just All right, higher side chatters, we've come to understand there lies some interesting phenomenon at the crossroads of reality and consciousness that our material worldview overlords would rather we not discuss. But having seen plenty of interesting data from studies in remote viewing, telepathy, and near-death experience, just to name a few, we realize it can't be ignored. Well, the only thing our shadowy elite hate more than people discarding their pre-approved perspective is when it wanders into areas that mess with their money. And today's guest might have done just that. The highly respected <laughs> Dr. Bill Bengston has been conducting research in anomalous healing for many years and has proven the effectiveness of his technique in 10 controlled animal experiments conducted in five university biological and medical laboratories. You can read more about it in his book, The Energy Cure, Unraveling the Mystery of Hands-On Healing, or pick up his audio training course and just dive in for yourself. But to my knowledge, he's done the most thorough scientific studies of the phenomenon on the planet, so it's a real treat to have him here to talk about it. Dr. Bengston, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thanks a lot. Appreciate being on. Yeah, you got it. This is really exciting, man, because there's a lot of speculation in the world. A lot of people claim to have interesting mental abilities or otherworldly experiences that don't fit into what our mainstream culture is willing to accept. And we sort of have to take their word for it or just reject it. But when I can drag a close-minded friend kicking and screaming into your research, which I've done a few times now, it's pretty satisfying to watch their reality tunnel break down as they try to deal with the implications of the so-called impossible. I'm sure you've had some uh, similar fun with this, right? Well, absolutely. But I'm one of those people like your friends. I'm not a believer in this stuff at all. I just find the phenomenon of healing pretty interesting and it keeps happening. <laughs> and so I never default to belief. I, I don't think I have a believing bone in my body, but the stuff keeps happening. And so my skeptical attitude towards this stuff is being tested, tested, tested. And as long as the data keeps showing that something's going on there and it's pretty interesting, then I'm going to keep at it. <laughs> Fair points. And so let's start at the beginning for people who might be new to this. How did you get started in studying healing? Well, it was a long time ago in a place far, far away. <laughs> we could probably make a movie about that. <laughs> and I was lifeguarding, and I ran into a guy there who claimed he was a psychic. Uh, his name was Bennett Mayrick. And so I was skeptical then, skeptical now. I said, well, you know, it's interesting. I had read some studies and some popular books and things like that on psychic stuff. And I said, well, if you can do this, let me test you. So he said, that's fine. And I started to give him tests and, and he was passing the test. It was really, uh, it was interesting and frustrating. And I figured if I designed sufficiently complex double blind studies that I could eventually find out that something else was going on, but he beat me, you know. I mean, the guy the guy was real. Hmm. He was a psychic. He could do readings. He did readings with astonishing accuracy. I couldn't find a flaw in what was going on. And his readings turned into physical readings. And by that, I mean kind of spontaneously, instead of getting 
what would be called normal psychometry and telling about this or that and personal stuff, he started to pick up physical symptoms on his own body. And when that happened, what was alleged to him was that the symptoms were leaving the person he was doing a reading on. Hmm. And he thought that was crazy. I, of course, thought it was crazy. And so we started to pick up stuff of people who were in pain and sick and things like that. And he would pick up the symptoms on his own body. And it seemed as if it was leaving the person. And so this went on for, I don't know, a few months. And I, I wasn't sure what to do with it. And one day he and I were sitting in a kitchen. And I had had a bad back for many years. I was actually a competitive swimmer and had to give up a swimming scholarship. And I, I was in kind of chronic pain all the time. Sometimes it would flare up, sometimes not so bad. But in this particular day, it was flaring up. And he's telling me this story about how he had just relieved somebody's pain. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, you're the village idiot here. The guy's talking about relieving pain, and you're sitting here in pain. Let's do something here. So just as I thought that, I know this sounds preposterous, but just as I thought that, he grabs his back and he goes, whoa, somebody has a pain. <laughs> So I let him twist in the wind for a while, and he's ruffling through his pockets and say, well, they don't have a pain. They don't have a pain. He's trying to figure out if he's carrying something of someone's, and he's going on and on. And again, I'm just letting him twist out there because I'm a nasty person. <laughs> and then finally, he says, I don't know what to make of this. I have a pain in my back. And I said, it's me. And he says, you? And I said, yeah, what kind of a half-assed psychic are you? You know, you can't <laughs> even tell what I have a pain in the back. He goes, keep your pain to yourself. And I said, better idea, fix it. <laughs> and he said, how? And I said, I don't know, put your hands on my back. And he said, and then do what? And I said, fix the damn thing. So I leaned over on a kitchen table, said, put your hands on my back, put his hands on my back. And he said, now what? And I said, just do it. And his hands, uh, well, not his hands, it, it was more a sensation of almost becoming novocaine in my back. And the Novocaine was, I don't know, five inches in diameter. And then it wore off from the outside in, and it was the last back pain I ever had. Hmm. So I've been absolutely back pain free for now a gazillion years. <laughs> if it's a hysterical suppression of symptoms, I'm fine with it. Because, you know, no matter what I do, my back never hurts. Wow. And so I thought, what are we going to do with this? Let's start putting his hands on other things and let's start seeing what's going on. And so I'm dragging him around, dragging his hands around, putting him on this, putting him on that. And we started to see some patterns. And the patterns were, in crude terms, pretty interesting. Some things seem to be affected, some things not so much. And that continues to this day. And we found out that, for example, benign growths don't seem to respond to this. Malignant growths do. Mm -hmm. And so started putting hands on people who have malignant growths, many people who have malignant growths, dozens and dozens and dozens of people who have malignant growths, and it's, it was a reasonably interesting phenomenon. So the first, I don't know, a couple of hundred healings are pretty interesting, but after a while, if you have a certain mindset, what do you learn? You know, you're not learning anything. Mm -hmm. So people were getting better sometimes. Sometimes they would get mad and run away. People don't like healing very much. <laughs> and I needed to get to what the underlying mechanism was. So that's essentially how I got started. I took my work from 
the clinical stuff, I went backwards and then went into the lab. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so impressive to me about this is that, you know, you were able to get started on this with no real training. And uh, it just seemed to be kind of a random occurrence, which makes me wonder why we don't see more just organic discoveries of this phenomenon if it seems to be so you know, easy to do. Are you talking about lab work? Well, just in what you've told us so far, kind of before you got to the lab work, it seemed like it didn't take very many trials before you had immediate successes. Yeah, the successes started right away. And one of the interesting things about this guy, who's no longer with us, incidentally, but one of the interesting things about this guy was that he had no trainer. He just kind of morphed into a psychic when he was in his late 40s. He wasn't a psychic before that. He morphed into being a psychic, then he morphed into being a healer, and then he went on from there. So mm. I would suspect that there's probably a bunch of people out there like this. I mean, this, you know, he can't be the only one walking around like this. So it, I just kind of glommed onto it and said, well, let's get to what's actually going on here. Right. And now as you got into lab experiments, you did a lot of research on cancer and mice. And for people who might not have a background in scientific research, tell us why the mice model and the parameters of it are really a pretty perfect situation for measuring this type of thing. Well, when you do normal research, and I'm going to say mine's not normal, or my path hasn't been normal. When you do normal research, you usually start with what are called preclinical models. So you do animals and cell cultures and things like that, and then eventually move into clinical where you're dealing with people. And I did the reverse. We just started putting hands on here and putting hands on there and just kind of taking gross observations about what was happening. And then I moved backwards into the lab to try to find out what's already going on. But to answer your question about why the lab is so good, the mouse model that we used first, and this was done at City University of New York, and there are many models like this, you know exactly what's going to happen. You know exactly when the mice got cancer. You know exactly what's going to happen after they get cancer. You're going to know exactly how long each mouse is going to live in the aggregate. So it's a very controlled environment. If you have a person, I mean, you don't even know when a person got sick. Mm -hmm. The client walks in off the street and says, I have a tumor, I have a this, I have a that. And you really don't know anything about it. I mean, people walk around with cancer all the time. Yeah. There is some suspicion that everybody has cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's discovered by autopsies of young people who die in car accidents. And when they're doing the autopsy and they're taking histology of this and that, it turns out virtually everybody has cancer. <laughs> but that's very different from a disease. Right. Just like you've got a whole bunch of bacteria and viruses and a good chunk of your cells are not of your origin. And you're walking around. You're not sick. You're just you're a colony. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some of the cells go rogue. And they're just floating around in your system, and then your immune system scoops them up and gets rid of them. Yeah. That's very different than being sick. So someone comes to you, and they have a tumor. You don't have no idea how long they've had it. You have no idea what's going on. And frankly, you know, let's say a person walks in and says, I have this tumor, and you put your hands on, and then you put your hands on, you put your hands on, you do a bunch of treatments. I mean, that's wonderful. 
But you don't know whether it was time. The body would have done it anyway. You don't know whether it's because they ate a grapefruit. <laughs> you don't know whether it's because they didn't eat a grapefruit. They had an extra vitamin C. They didn't have an extra vitamin C. I mean, you don't know. People are too complex. Yeah. So you go into the lab and you have mice. You know exactly who they are, where they came from, how long they're going to live, everything about them. You know what they've eaten, how long they've slept, you know, everything about them. And the particular model I work with wasn't chosen by me. It was chosen by an oncology lab. It's a mammary cancer. And the short version is you get a particular kind of mouse. You inject it with a certain number of cells, usually about 100,000. And then you know exactly what's going to happen. The one I used, 100% of the mice in 20 years of research and thousands of papers, 100% of the mice die in 27 days. They don't die all on the 27th day. It follows kind of a normal bell curve, and a certain percentage die on a certain day and a certain percentage on the next day and such. But it's a very, very tight model. Mm -hmm. If you're geeky and you want to talk about standard deviations, the standard deviation of death is three days, which means two-thirds of the mice die plus or minus a particular three days. Mm -hmm. And no mouse has ever lived past day 27. The other good thing about this model is that everything is on the external. So nothing metastasizes. You just get a mouse with an ugly growth, and the growth gets bigger and uglier, and then the mouse dies. Mm -hmm. And so you can measure it, you can weigh it, you can do anything you want. And so lots of people all over the world use this particular mouse model. So it's very, very, very common. And so I said, well, give me something that's common. And so this became the, the model I started with. And so the benefit of the lab work is that we know you can do very, very detailed work and you know everything about the animal. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's good for people to have that context of the model that you were using and how reliable it is. So walk us through the first experiment and where you got to that big eureka moment. Yeah, I was kind of flopping on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> it caught me off guard. Again, I come to this for, as a skeptic. And I thought, well, let's see what happens. We get some mice. We have them injected. All this, of course, is done by the biologists. And we put our hands around a cage. Let's see what happens to the mice. And I'm thinking, well, we're going to have very controlled environment. We can see what's going on. And now among the things I am is a statistician. And so I thought I would be doing statistical analyses of this on different shapes of the curves of death and all this stuff. So we started out and... The original person who was going to do these experiments was, of course, Bennett Mayrick, the guy who dragged me down this crazy path, and he backed out, and and that wasn't good for my team. I kind of had a fit because it was very difficult to set this up. Yeah. And so months and months went into the planning of this experiment, and he backs out, and then we left with mice are coming, and we have no healer. So I'm not a healer, but I was then volunteered because there was no plan B, or I guess plan C, for anybody else to do this. So I had followed him around a lot and learned a lot and watched a lot, and so I became the substitute healer on this thing. So I went to the lab and put my hands around the cage for an hour a day. We had no idea how long you'd need to do this, and we figured we'd watch, see what happens. And I was thinking at the time, maybe healing is like radiation. 
you zap it. You know, I'm thinking I'm zapping something if something is going to work. So if the mice are just injected with cancer a couple of days earlier and, you know, we go kind of a thing, then maybe like radiation, it'll kill the cells and all that stuff. And instead, the tumors are growing. And so I'm, I'm an empiricist, you know, and here are the data. And so the tumors are growing and I said, well, it's not working. Let's cancel this thing. And the people who had set this up and spent quite a bit of time setting it up said, well, just do it a couple more days. So I get, all right, I'll do it a couple more days. So I'm putting my hands around the cage for an hour a day. Tumors keep growing. And I said, come on, they're growing. And they said, yeah, but you know, they, they don't seem sick. Hmm. And you know, it's true. They seem bright eyed, bushy tailed, but they have these ugly growths. And I'm thinking, well, if they have the growths and I couldn't prevent the cancer from growing, I'm probably not having any effect at all. Go on a couple more days. I do it a couple more days. Tumor's getting even bigger. And now it's getting huge. And I'm going, come on, folks. Pay attention. The thing doesn't work. And so a couple more days, the tumor get a blackened area on the tip of it. And now I'm sure they're dying. A couple more days, I'm urged. The tumor ulcerates. Nobody had ever seen this ulceration before. And I'm thinking, well, they're dying. We got to stop. Give you an idea of my belief in this stuff. Mm -hmm. And they say a couple more days and then the tumor implodes and the mice are cured. Damn. Damnedest thing. <laughs> Damnedest thing. I mean, when we got the results that the mice are cured, they're not remitted. I mean, we didn't know that at the time, but these aren't remitted mice because it's not a relief of symptoms. They're cured for life. So we watch them for their entire lifespan, and it gets even nuttier. We can re-inject them during their entire lifespan, and they can't get cancer again. Yeah, and that to me is, is the wildest thing. Well, it's nutty. I mean, you know, give me a break. This is silly. Mm -hmm. But here are the data, you know. So, again, I'm, I, I don't come as a believer. I'm going... It didn't happen the way I wanted to. It didn't happen the way I expected it to. Nothing goes the way I expected it to. And so I, I've concluded that this is not anything like a psychokinetic effect. Certainly nature is not doing what I want it to. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the tumors. I thought if it was going to be successful, the tumors would never grow. But they grow. <laughs> and then they ulcerate. And then they implode. Well, it's not my doing. I didn't script this. So nature has a weird sense of humor, and she takes it the way she wants to go with it. But the cures are not – healing is not a psychokinetic effect. It's not you getting what you want, at least insofar as the stages go to full cure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is interesting. We find that the body does a lot of things that we don't necessarily know how to do. Like if you, you can't really beat your heart on command, it just kind of happens all the time. And yeah. you know, you can't pump blood to a certain part of your body on demand. It just, it happens. So the idea that you don't need to know exactly how it's happening, it's not that hard to believe. But with results like this, people are going to want to know more about the tool that did it. What can you tell us about this method you developed and how you perfected it? Well, the method is still evolving, but in the time I spent with Ben, he's a weird guy, you know, and among his weird qualities was an apparent ability to answer questions he didn't know anything about. Hmm. And I, I have a tendency to ask a lot of questions. 
So I would ask a question, he'd give an answer, and neither of us would understand what the hell he just said. <laughs> and making this a reasonably long story much shorter, I asked him a whole lot of questions about how what he was doing naturally or spontaneously could be reproduced by other people. And fast forwarding a couple of thousand questions, we started to get a glimpse or started to understand what would have to happen to a inexperienced novice to reproduce what he was doing just naturally. And this became the method. And so the method is called image cycling. I mean, that's the base method. And incidentally, just for anybody hearing this, I don't have any proprietary secret information. All this stuff is published. So I have written instructions on how to do this. I have a training audio tape on how to reproduce this effect. I give workshops teaching people how to do this. So anybody can learn. You don't have, I'm not a healer, but healing happens. And so the method we called image cycling and probably Ben wouldn't recognize it today, but it's still the same plot. And the general idea is this. You're going through a very, very, very rapid imaging process of very specific concrete things that you want. And we try to start with a list of at least 20 things, very, very precise. So I want a blue Miata. I want a red Porsche. Um, and I'm just giving car examples, yeah. which is kind of weird for me because I don't like cars. <laughs> What's a cool car? A Tesla. You know, I need a green Tesla. <laughs> I'm making stuff up. So the first picture is me driving a green Tesla. The second picture is me at the top of Mount Everest. The third picture is me and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all end images. There's nothing to do with the means to the end. So, for example, if you ask any group of people, and I would include your listeners, I've never found an exception. If you ask any group of people what they want, first of all, they have difficulty coming up with 20 things. Hmm. And then they think, I really only want three. And everybody says the same three things. It's really quite astonishing. Hmm. So, for example, they say, I want to be happy. Now, that has no content. Right. The second thing they say is, I want money. And then, of course, they think money will make them happy, too. And the third thing they say is, I want to be healthy. Now, none of those things can go on the list because they're just vague generalities, mm -hmm. and they're not end points. So if you want money because you want to buy a car, it's the car you want. And if you think money, if I had money, I'd be able to buy the car. Yeah, but if it's the car you want, it's the car that's the image. Yeah, focus on the car. Yeah, and how you get it, whether you get it because you win the lottery or you come into a lot of money or somebody gives you a car for Christmas, it doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. You got the car. I want to be happy. I have no idea what that means. You know, Does that mean you want to walk around with a big grin all the time? Does that mean you want a car? <laughs> so these images are very, very, very specific, and they're burned into your brain. It takes a while. This is not an easy technique, incidentally. And then you image them very, very rapidly. And I mean very rapidly. You'd never believe how rapid you can do this. Again, this goes to training CDs and things like that and, and workshops, and it takes a while. But by the end of a two-day workshop, I've got people going several thousand images a second at least. Hmm. And then they leave, and then they go practice, and they get really fast.
And so the first step is this image cycling, which is a pain. I don't know anything about comparative healing, but I'm told there are healing techniques that you can master, you know, in five seconds and you can do everything, you know, well, that, that, they're better than me. <laughs> Mine is a pain and it takes a lot of practice and it's annoying and I get cursed out. So for people who are trying to kind of conceptualize this method a little further, would you say it's more in the realm of what people might think of as neuro-linguistic programming? No. I think it's a matter of just grinding out practice of a new skill of extremely rapid imaging. And as in anything, anything that you master becomes mindless. Mm -hmm. So if you're learning a new skill, you start mindfully and then if you once you get pretty good at it and you've then you've programmed yourself you transition to mindless hmm. so if i i mean you can use sports analogies I, I i'm going to teach you a backhand in tennis and i feed you a backhand and you hit it in the wrong direction i feed you a backhand i feed you a couple thousand feeds later you hit it in the right direction a couple thousand feeds later it's starting to do what you want it to do a couple of a thousand feeds later you can feel it and then after a while, it becomes just a natural flow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The flow is the state you want to be in. But just like learning how to master tennis or learning how to master anything requires a lot of mindful practice before it transitions to mindless. So when you were a little kid trying to learn how to take your first steps, you looked like an idiot. Yeah. And you kept falling. You got up. You got falling. You got up. You got falling. You got up. You got falling. And then one day, phase transition, and you were off and running. Mm -hmm. these techniques like image cycling work roughly the same way. Right on. And you mentioned comparative healing and not knowing much about that, of course. And there is a new age culture that talks about love and light, healing, the power of intention, crystals, Reiki, and all that stuff. Do you see any connection to the method you developed and these type of things new agers claim? Uh, I don't know enough about that world. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not a healer. And... I'm studying the stuff that I'm producing and that I'm training other people to produce. And I, I that, that fills my plate enough. Yeah. I'm not in a contest with any other healing technique and I don't know. I can tell you anecdotally, I mean, there's been a whole lot of people who have taken my workshop who are already trained healers. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is this would be an example. Someone comes in and they already are trained in their Reiki masters and their Joe Ray masters and their therapeutic touch masters. And I'm not sure what else, but you get the idea. So they, they've been trained in all of these things. And they actually sometimes have healing clinics themselves. Sometimes they have private practices, but they've been off and running and they're very different than me. They're actually healers. Mm -hmm. And they're able to do things, but they're frustrated that they can't do certain things. Now, the stuff that I can do seems to be a little bit different in some cases than what they can do. So they come to me to learn mine so they're able to do what they couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, and again, I'm not, this is not a contest, but as far as I'm aware, Reiki, therapeutic touch, healing touch, you know, yada, yada, does not seem to cure cancer. For reasons that make no sense to me, in the sense that I don't really understand it, mine fixes cancer. Hmm. On the flip side, mine won't affect a wart, literally. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got a wart, 
and you treat using my technique, and you treat for the next six days, 60 days, nothing happens. Now, that's a clue, but nothing happens. Now, if you do Reiki, I'm told, and you just go, you know, Reiki, Reiki, and it goes away. <laughs> now, that's interesting. It is. So the people who are Reiki people who haven't cured cancer, they learn my method, and then they cure a sh the boatload of cancers in a row. <laughs> On the other hand, they lose the ability to do warts. <laughs> weird. It's a weird world. <laughs> Which I think is pretty fun. So so the, the people who are actually healers, and let's say you're a good clinician. I'm not. But let's say you're a good clinician, and a person comes to you with a wart. Well, you're probably going to want to do something like Reiki. I'm just making this up. I don't know what Reiki is. But I'm told that Reiki fixes warts. Now, if you use my method and, you know, you learn this crazy image cycling and you practice your brains out for the next month, well, you're going to lose the ability to do the wart if you apply my method. But you do Reiki and it'll go away. But if someone comes to you with cancer, you don't want to do Reiki. You want to do mine. Mm -hmm. And then you become a, you know, you've got another quiver in your arsenal there about what you can bring to, to bear on clinical cases. Mm -hmm. That I think is reasonably interesting. So mine seems to, I don't, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm not schooled in comparative stuff. Mine fixes cancer. I don't know why. It doesn't do warts, you know, to take two extremes. We haven't had anybody fix Parkinson's. Right. I think that's interesting. It definitely is. You've had some success with Alzheimer's, I believe, right? Alzheimer's, we we seem to be able to do, and so I I never did an Alzheimer's patient because I don't do patients. I you know I'm trying to save the rodents of the world, <laughs> and you know people who do people after a while I get sick of people because they're very annoying, and they they join me in trying to save rodents. But people who I've taught who have clinical patients all over the place, they're doing Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and I've never done one. So I got a group in Germany doing Alzheimer's, and they're fixing it. And I got a group in Chicago and a group in San Francisco. And they're reporting all this stuff that I've never tried. I think it's pretty interesting. And so Alzheimer's responds almost immediately and dramatically like cancer does. Mm -hmm. And again, that's another clue. Yeah. Parkinson's, no. Nobody's made any any inroads to Parkinson's. Cancer is a dime a dozen now, you know, so that's not particularly interesting. Hmm. But the Alzheimer's and the other stuff is pretty interesting. Haven't had really great success with diabetes. Weird. So I did a I did a guy, elderly gentleman, who had lost body parts from long time, you know, very severe type one diabetes. He was blind, you know, as parts of him had been amputated because of circulation complications and all this kind of stuff. And so I tried him just for yucks. And best I could do, I I gave him about fifty percent of his sight back and uh, about a fifty percent reduction in insulin. He was happy, but I considered it a failure mm -hmm. in the sense that he wasn't fixed. And so something's going on there. Our working hypothesis right now is that, at least in my technique, it seems to be better at removing things than giving things. Mm, makes sense. If you've got inflammation, this stuff is unbelievably good. And I did lab work at Wake Forest Medical School on inflammation. And in cell culture models, you put your hands around, you do the image cycling, the inflammation all goes away, 100% of it almost immediately. It's bizarre. Hmm. But if you're a Parkinson's patient, you're missing something. So I have a deficit 
If I am a diabetic, I have a deficit. If I have cancer, I can take something away. If you have Alzheimer's, I can take something away. So Alzheimer's responds immediately and dramatically, but age-related dementia, not really. Mm -hmm. If you're just decomposing because you're old, <laughs> this doesn't seem to stop the decomposition. If you have Alzheimer's, you probably have inflammatory plaques, and those go away. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely fascinating, man. And so you've done 10 experiments toying with this stuff, maybe more now, but uh, according to your website, oh, 10. Yeah, I'm over 20. I think the website, I've never seen my website, but I, that, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you it's outdated. So Fair. I, I got it. I got at least 20 uh, plus many, many, many cell culture experiments. Right on. So you got 20 experiments toying with this stuff. Once you discovered it, it worked. What were some of the other factors and variations you decided to test out? Well, when, as soon as something works, in order to check to make sure that you're not diluting yourself, one of the first things we have to do is repeat it. And as you say now, I'm up to, you know, at least 20 of these things, but I'm not doing it just to show that the first 19 worked. I'm doing this to look at different permutations, trying to unravel what the mechanism is. Right. The first thing I did once I did the initial one at Queens College was to find out if other people could do it and are they learning it as I think they're learning it. If I was the only one who could do this, that's not good for my team. <laughs> you know, there, there's no upside for me being the only one able to do this. I mean, that's, that's really gut awful. Yeah. So what I did is I took two faculty members, skeptics, no experience in healing, probably couldn't spell healing, two students who thought, really, what do you want me to do? They have no experience in this. Not, didn't know anything whatsoever. And I said, would you like to volunteer? I'm going to teach you a technique and then we're going to try to go out and cure cancer. And they said, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, cause they thought I was kidding. If anyone said to me, Oh, I believe that, then they were excluded. I've never worked with a believer cause they scare me. <laughs> so I got two faculty members, two students, and we went through a training program, same as my CD training program. Same as the workshop, same as, you know, nothing unique there. And so we went through that. They got mice just like I got mice coming out of the same lab. They had cages of mice and the same thing happened. All of them were cured. So uh, my next step was, well, if they're all getting cured out of this lab, I'm a skeptic. It must be a bad lab. So let's move to another lab. So I went to a different lab, got more untrained, inexperienced volunteers had some other biologist set it up, did it again, same result, did it again, different people, same result, and you get the idea. So my first thought was, can I replicate this? Second thought was, can anybody do this? Is there anything unique going on? And so it turns out, I don't know whether believers can heal, but I know that non-believers can heal. <laughs> or I, I can't say non-believers, people who are skeptics. Yeah. Skepticism is a, is an interesting phenomenon. There are very few skeptics in my experience. I've given lectures at skeptic societies, invited, and I usually start by insulting them, which is my strength. <laughs> and what I do is I'll walk into a gaggle of skeptics and they're all folded up. You know, their arms are folded, their legs are folded, they got a scowl on their face. Mm -hmm. And I say something along the lines of, I'm the only skeptic in the room. <laughs> then they get mad. 
And they know we're the such and such skeptic society. I said, no, you're really not a skeptic society. You're believers. You're actually mindless believers. Everybody here knows the stuff I haven't said is wrong. Yeah. And I haven't said it yet. <laughs> so you're you're a mindless believer, but you're just being the direction of my mindless belief is to disbelief. So I've run into mindless believers who think everything is true and mindless believers who think everything is false. I said, how about looking at the evidence? Right. And holding off, holding off on your conclusion, which is really what a skeptic should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. So one of the experiments that I've heard that you did that I thought was most impressive in looking at different factors and conditions for how this stuff might work is uh, something where you were in an MRI machine and had envelopes in your hands. Yeah. Yeah, this goes to uh, I, I had a couple of questions going on. I've done functional MRI work and healing at uh, University of Connecticut Medical School and Thomas Jefferson Medical School. I also have some EEG studies, but the MRI stuff, uh, a functional MRI, and probably a lot of people listening have seen, you know, pretty brain pictures kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so you'll, you'll see this part of the brain is colored differently than that part of the brain. And they look impressive and all that stuff. But what they're really measuring is oxygenation to a particular part of the brain. And what you're assuming is that if the brain is using more oxygen, that part of the brain is more active. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know, first of all, can you toggle healing and can we measure it? In other words, if I'm sitting in an MRI or lying down in an MRI, which is a really ugly environment, and I'm toggled and, and so I'm cued, okay, start your cycling, now stop your cycling. Start your cycling, stop your cycling, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it turns out, I didn't think you'd be able to do that. It just didn't sound human to me. But I went into the MRI, so let's give it a shot, see what happens. I'm usually wrong about everything, so let's go test it. And so I get into the MRI, can we turn it on and turn it off? And it turns out we can. And I still don't know how to think about that, but, but it, it, at this point I have enough people who have done this that I'm reasonably confident that you actually can toggle healing on and off. And you can toggle cycling on and off. Then what I did is I stuck volunteers into the MRI and I would cycle on them from the outside. And it turns out their brain turns on and off just like mine did when I was in there. So what happens in my brain happens in their brain. It just happens from a distance. So what I've realized that I can affect somebody's brain from a distance and that what happens in my brain actually toggles on and off, which is the real mode of a functional MRI, then the question was, how much of this is conscious and how much of this is not conscious? Right. So consciously, I can turn the cycling on and off. I can turn the healing on and off. And I can turn your brain on and off from a distance. And in that particular case, I'm trying or I'm aware. So the next step was, what happens if I'm prompted to heal? And so this is now the next phase of the study where I and other folks who know my technique would get into an MRI. It's an enclosed MRI, and the only thing sticking out would be a hand. And someone would put double-blind envelopes into your hand, and some of the envelopes had nothing in them. They were sham or control envelopes, 
And some of the envelopes had pictures and hair samples of cancerous animals 600 miles away. We got this from a vet. So they had horses and dogs and cats and goats and, you know, things like that. And so there was a picture and like a little couple of strands of hair. So some of the envelopes had nothing in them, and some of the envelopes had the strands of hair and the picture of the cancerous animal. And when they're dropped into your hand, and now you're not told to do anything, you just lie in the MRI, it turns out that you toggle on and off if there's a need represented. Mm -hmm. So if nothing is in the envelope, and you drop the envelope in your hand, nothing out of the ordinary happens. But if there's a picture and a hair sample, not consciously, but you autonomically turn on, your brain turns on, it recognizes that there's a need there, and you go into the same mode as if you were trying to heal. Hmm. And my conclusion from that, of course, is healing is not a conscious act. Right. Yeah, I mean, people consciously try to heal, but I think that's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're relevant to healing. Yeah, I mean, you don't even need to see or know the target, apparently, in any way. Nope, nope, nope. Never saw these. And, uh, as a sidebar, the, the animals were cured, but that wasn't the point of the experiment. Mm -hmm. So it was really, does it turn on and turn off? I mean, a lot of people think that you have to be in a particular state of mind, or you have to feel a connection, or you have to, you know, things along those lines. It turns out that that's, that's, that's not real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the energy susceptibility issue, it's, you know, people apparently can do it whether they feel those energies or not. Yeah, I, I think we've reversed the causal sequence in our heads where people think you have to get into a particular state of mind and then healing follows. Mm -hmm. And it turns out you don't. <laughs> and I have more experiments, but the bottom line to the experiments is this. The connection happens, and it's a measurable connection between healer and healee. Turns out distance doesn't matter. There's a measurable connection, but you don't have to be aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that you have to get into a state of mind in order to heal. Healing happens, and you may or may not experience it. Right. So if we look at it along a continuum of people's sensitivity levels, some people are very, very sensitive, and some people are insensitive bricks. It turns out the bricks heal just as well as the sensitives. Hmm. But the sensitives are more aware of it. And the mistake they've made is that that sense of connection that they have, that they're aware of and others aren't, is the thing that they have to feel in order to heal. And it turns out that's simply not the case. Hmm. Bricks do just fine. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And you mentioned the EEG studies and the kind of synchronization that seems to happen between sender and receiver. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the, the EEG studies are published in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, which I'd like to do a riff on the Society for Scientific Exploration in a, in a little bit. But what I have is we had very, very, very high-end EEG equipment, and we had a bunch of volunteers, and volunteers would be in a separate room, and we had multiple EEGs going, and they were synchronized. And so they're very high-end equipment, and they're sampling from both people on 38 leads every 500th of a second. So we're gathering a lot of data. And in the gathering of a lot of data, 
we find out what happens when someone intends on healing the other person at a distance or cycles with the intention of helping that other person. And it turns out that there is a brain, um, it, it, it'd be close to calling it a phase lock. The brains go into synchronization on many, many, many multiple channels of frequency. Mm-hmm. So you're in the other room, I'm in another room, and I'm told, okay, now think connect, cycle on, heal, and then our brains go into a phase lock. Wow. Now, that doesn't have to be conscious. Mm-hmm. And here we go to, you know, what's the part of the conscious mind? Well, I don't think the conscious mind is all that important. Right. I make fun of the conscious mind. I call it a pea brain. <laughs> I like that. And I've heard you talk about the brain harmonic pattern that is created and how unique it is. Have you compared that pattern to any other altered states at all? Well, the the guy who was the head EEG guy on this study is a guy by the name of Jay Gunkelman. And he's a biggie in the EEG world. He's got 19 labs, you know, things like that. And, you know, I'm not an EEG expert. I just kind of ask this be done, that be done, and all that. But he's the actual geek. And he is... He is aware of at least a half a million EEG outputs from people. So he's very familiar with the field and what's happened and all that other kind of stuff. And he says that he's never seen an output like this. Hmm. So in the 500,000 EEGs he's familiar with, he's never seen this. And basically we get a brain harmonizing with itself. Uh, it goes into at least three-part harmony. I think it may be more parts of harmony. It's kind of like it's singing a song, but it may be more, just it was outside the range of the equipment to detect. And then that unique signal appears in your head when we think of you at a distance. Mm-hmm. And you're not trying to produce it. It just, you know, it's, if you will, you're either going into sync or A is giving to B. We're not sure how to think about it yet. Yeah, I, I love that aspect of it. And this technique of rapid mental image cycling there is another fringe area where people talk about this kind of stuff and i know you're not a comparative guy but have you looked at the way occultists describe magic ritual and how they work their kind of stuff because they describe it in a similar way that it's about mental imaging oh is that right yeah well mental imaging you know what little i know about it is more of holding an image and mine is the opposite of holding an image. Rapid. I'm talking seriously rapid. Yeah. So if I'm going through a hundred different images and I'm going dun, 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 I'm going through much more than those hundred images with each beat. Mm-hmm. So if you're going that fast, you're not holding onto any image. You can't hold onto any image because your pea brain is too slow at processing information. <laughs> Yeah. And so if it is something where a group of folks, meditators in some other context are holding an image, then it's almost the exact opposite of what I'm doing. Hmm. Right on. We're not holding it all. Gotcha. It's almost like trying to induce it to your subconscious or trying to offload it to the subconscious. Yeah, it is, but it, it's also as you practice it and you transition to mindless. Again, and go back to the example of either learning how to play tennis or just 
something perhaps more familiar, the idea of walking. You know, your first time you take a conscious step to take a walk and, you know, you plop, you plop, you plop. And then, then there's a phase transition where there's a sudden transformation and then walking becomes second nature. And now everybody walks around and they're not even aware they're walking. Mm-hmm. And so now after you've mastered walking, you can then walk and talk. You can walk and gesture and talk because with each mastery, you transition to mindlessness and then something else can be superimposed on that mindless skill. So when you're hitting a backhand in the middle of a match, you're not thinking about what's the first step in a backhand. You're feeling a flow. When you're walking, you're probably past that. You don't even know you're walking. So people go walking, you know, and driving, a very common experience. You miss the last 25 miles. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't mean you were a danger. It means you're mindless. Yeah. Mindless is a compliment. <laughs> now, you know, you go join an organization and you do a practice in mindful walking. Well, you look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's good to exercise the pea brain, but it's just an entertainment value. It's not to make you a better walker. If you're looking for walking mastery, you never pay attention. Yeah, it's true. If you're looking for healing mastery, you should never pay attention to healing. That's common in so many different things. Stand-up comics, I've known several of them, and they always say their best sets are when it just feels automatic, like they're not even there. Yeah, you're on a roll. Exactly. You're in the flow. But if you try to be in the flow, you won't flow. (laughs) That's the irony. If you try to walk, you're going to fall on your face. Mm-hmm. If you try to heal, you're just feeding the pea brain. You're not doing healing. So you let it go. And right now, to give you an idea, although your listeners won't be able to understand this, you have never heard me when I was not cycling. Hmm. So it would be impossible for me to calculate the rapid imaging rate that I'm doing while I'm talking to you, but I am not distracted in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> wow. When you learn my technique, it will be more mindful practice, and then you'll hate me and, and you know, curse me out and all those things. But when you master it, you go through that phase transition where you start to transition to mindless, just like walking, just like, just like, just like. But in answer to your question, no, in no way do we ever hold an image. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I've also heard you mentioned earlier, healing seems to be about having a need. And I've heard you say that before, adding to it a need of the highest order. Can you elaborate on that last little caveat and maybe the insights that you've gotten that led you to that conclusion? What does that necessarily mean, uh, having a need of the highest order? Well, the the, the first thing, uh, I'll give you a, a, just an image from some of the experiments we, we we've done imagine sitting in an animal room you're in an animal room and there's a bunch of cages around and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. and you got a bunch of sick mice so the, the mice have cancer if you put your hands around the cage of mice with cancer they will i mean by this time it's not an interesting we've done this so many hundreds of times they will move to your left hand hmm. you can spin the cage the mice don't like that, but you can spin the cage and then put your hands straight down the same way they were before, and the mice will move to your left hand. When they're cured, they no longer move to the left hand. So they're responding to their need. Mm-hmm. They're taking, or they can sense, because they don't have to talk themselves out of it, 
they know naturally to go to the left hand. If I run machinery in the room when I'm treating mice, and I'll give you some examples. If you run a random number generator, random number generator is kind of like an electronic coin flipper. Mm -hmm. And it flips it very, very fast, and there's no pattern to it whatsoever. And this is stuff that comes out of Princeton engineering. And so they develop random number generators to test to see if consciousness can affect random number generators. Mm -hmm. Well, if you, it turns out you can. But if you run a random number generator and you treat the random number generator as if it's a patient. So think of like a six-inch gizmo. And you're putting your hands around it like you'd put your hands around a mouse cage. You put your hands on a person. And you do the cycling. You do whatever it is that you're doing. So you're treating a random number generator. Nothing happens out of the ordinary to the random number generator. But if I treat a cage of mice in the room and I run the random number generator in the background, the random number generator goes crazy. Hmm. It no longer generates random numbers. That will only happen while the mice are sick. Once they're cured, that doesn't happen. Hmm. If I run a geomagnetic probe, which is just taken, it's a very sensitive gizmo that's measuring background geomagnetic fluctuations that, that naturally occur on the Earth. If I treat that like I'm treating a client, nothing happens. But if I put a geomagnetic probe in a room and I treat a cage of mice that are sick, the probe goes crazy. If the mice are cured, the probe doesn't react at all. The probe and the random number generator seem to be responding to a healing phenomenon which is going on, which is driven not by my will, but rather the needs of the animals. And probably there's a change in physical space which occurs. So the probe knows when there's a need going on. But if I treat the probe directly, nothing happens. The random number generator knows when healing is going on. But if I treat the random number generator directly, nothing happens. Something is responding when there's a need present. A second cousin of this, probably twice removed, but a second cousin of this is if you treat a person and you're treating them for bad knees, well, their asthma may also clear up. Mm. So the issue of higher order needs, I think, goes to the body is distributing whatever it needs wherever it needs to do it. Interesting. And I suspect, I mean, here's among the other things that occur. Once a mouse is cured... You can take cells from that mouse and put it into another mouse, and it'll cure that other mouse Jeez. <laughs> without the healing. Now, that's reasonably interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know what the mechanism is, but there's a higher order, I think, a hierarchy of things. So let's say someone comes in and they have A, B, C, and D condition. Well, I think that A, B, C, and D condition may all respond to the healing, but in its own hierarchical sequence as the body administers whatever it needs. Now, if I treat a cell culture of cancer, so I've got cancer in a Petri dish, and you put your hands around the dish and it's just cancer, the cancer explodes in growth. Hmm. Now, by explodes in growth, I'm talking about 
a minimum of a 600% increase in the growth of cancer. It's not subtle. Now, what does cancer need? Well, cancer likes to grow. Yes? Yeah. So if cancer is your client and you put your hands around your client, the question is, what does your client need? Well, if I put my hands around cancer, the cancer grows wildly. I think that if I had this supercharged cancer and I put that into a mouse, the cancer would collapse. Mm-hmm because the mouse has a higher order need than the cancer. Right. <laughs> I, I find that to be one of the most interesting aspects of this thing. And I've heard you say in a presentation that in terms of the, the mechanism of the, the rapid mental image cycling, that there could be other applications beyond healing. What, what do you think this technique could possibly do outside of repair? Well, it's not a healing technique. It's a mental imaging technique, which just happens to result in healing. Mm -hmm. So there are many people who don't want to heal, aren't interested in healing, don't need to be healed, but they just want to manifest stuff in their life. So they cycle because they cycle because they're selfish. And they want that, I forgot what I asked for, Miata, or they want the (laughs) Porsche. Green Tesla, thank you. (laughs) They want a green Tesla. So people have gotten green. Actually, I don't think anyone's gotten a green one yet. But, <laughs> but you know, say they get blue and red and all that kind of stuff. But they're putting out the things that they want selfishly, whether it has anything to do with healing or not, and they're getting those things. And it works. Yeah. Huh. So it seems to work as a manifestation technique, as a mechanical manifestation technique, because even a skeptic like me, it doesn't make any difference. They use it as a mechanical manifestation technique and one of the things that some people want to manifest is healing. So if I have a problem and I have a bad knee and my image is of me, you want to get past the knee. The image is of me playing tennis. That means my knee is fixed. The image is of me skiing moguls. Well, that means my knees are fixed. So they're doing it because they want to fix knees. They're doing it because they want a green Tesla. They're doing it because whatever their selfish reasons are. I love selfishness. (laughs) Who doesn't? All healing should be selfish. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that is so fascinating that this technique has that kind of application. I mean, that would kind of make this rapid mental image cycling technique one of the most powerful things on the planet, really. I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah. You know, forget healing. I just say I can't imagine not doing it. I can't imagine why anyone wouldn't do it. Other than it's a pain in the butt to learn. Right. You know, but so is hitting a backhand. It just depends. Do you want to hit a backhand? Well, if so, you're going to need to put in some time. People don't naturally hit tennis backhands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love it, man. And (laughs) so (laughs) as we're getting to, uh, to the end here, just to play devil's advocate. Now, of course, the data and the research papers, they speak for themselves. And I'm not an expert, so it's a little over my head already. But I see a lot of big words and long sentences, and it looks very serious. <laughs> but I've looked into detractors of your work, too, in preparation for this. And I really don't see much there. But I do see some claims that because you are primarily a sociologist, that this might be some sort of social study on the placebo effect or the power of uh, belief. Have you heard that criticism yourself? Not as a criticism. I've heard it certainly in my volunteers. If I have a volunteer doing the mice experiments 
they wonder what I'm really doing. Mm-hmm. And so a, a very common theme is that they'll independently come to the conclusion because, you know, everything they're, I'm asking them to do is crazy. You know, I get that. Mm-hmm. They actually think I'm doing a study in gullibility. Yeah. That'll give you an idea how little they believe. Mm-hmm. But they actually think I'm doing a study in gullibility. So, you know, if, <laughs> if, if yeah, it, the cancer gets cured. What can I tell you? <laughs> mm-hmm. And the volunteers yeah. who get involved in this, uh, when they see these positive results, they get a little, they get pretty angry at you, right? For shaking their worldview. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I victimize them because they're going through life as normal people. They're not into the world of hocus pocus and, some lunatic comes along, tells them to make a list, check it twice, cycle it thrice, and and then then they cure cancer. Uh, what what do you what do you do with that? They were not seeking healing, and they were selected because they laughed in my face when I told them what I wanted them to do. So again, if uh, if I go looking for a volunteer and the volunteer says, "Oh yes, yes, I know that stuff," or "I study," or "I believe that stuff," I I, I run away from it. And so these poor people are, are just end up, you know, what do I do with this? And, and the reality is it's, it's pretty disruptive to their world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you going to do? It, the results speak for themselves, but man. Yeah. But, but, you know, you talk about detractors. So I imagine me speaking in a medical school and I'm given the technical data and they're, they're, they're trying to cut my knees out for three hours and I'm okay if they cut my knees out. Cause if I'm doing something wrong, I'm not defensive about it. I'll say thank you for pointing out my mistake. Yeah. So far, I get standing ovations. <laughs> Man, I, I just, I would love to see this kind of thing hit the mainstream. I would love to see more and more people adopt this worldview and see it as something that's actually legitimate. But I guess we got more work to do. <laughs> well, I'd like to see people who will stop defending beliefs. Yes. Amen. You know, relax. All your beliefs are wrong. Even the belief that all beliefs are wrong is wrong. Right. We don't we we don't know what we're talking about. Let's have some fun and 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 let's let let's have let's have a little excitement in the world and let's follow and let's play and let's tinker and then let's question everything. Yeah. Cheers to that. <laughs> well, yep. yep. Dr. Bill Bankston, thanks so much for doing this. I I think we turned a lot of minds to mush out there. Always a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> um before we really call it in, can you tell people where to dive into more of the research for themselves, learn how to, you know, learn more about the method and keep tabs on what you're doing? Sure. The you're, you're giving me a trick question now, like what's my website? I, it, it's called bankstonresearch.com. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I say I'm since I don't remember what it is, it's because I don't really maintain that website. But bankstonresearch.com, the book which will just tell you a story, you know, it's like once upon a time is called the energy cure and that's available. You can get on Amazon or sounds true. And then if you want to learn the method itself, also available from Amazon or sounds true is a six CD set entitled hands on healing, a training course in the energy cure. And that is actually designed to teach you the stuff. Uh, and, And on the website, Presumably, is also a way to find out where I, I give maybe four workshops a year. That's it. Rest of the time I'm in the lab. But I, I, uh, I give maybe four workshops a year. I have one coming up in Marin County in February, pretty sure. And then I go to Germany and then I got, I don't know, but it's on the website. So if you want to learn how to do it, and skeptically, that's a wonderful thing. If you want to learn how to do it, you can check in on the website. 
and it'll it'll tell you how to do it if you want to do it on your own you want to come to a workshop you want to you want to you want to <laughs> again i don't have any private secrets i don't have any proprietary knowledge i'm not a the great guru i'm just kind of muddling through life and i'm saying this is an interesting thing come play with me yeah awesome man well thanks again really impressive stuff paradigm changing for sure keep doing what you do out there all right man thanks you got it see ya see ya all right, all right, all right. Super happy to have gotten Dr. Bill on the show. Fairly unique episode, I'd say. Probably one of the most scientific approaches to some fringe healing science that I've seen. I know Bill says he's not a comparative guy, doesn't know a lot about these other fields like magic and NLP, and that's cool, but we do. So I think when you're putting the big puzzle together, the good doctor's piece is definitely useful. The fact that his technique revolves around rapid mental imaging is way more interesting to me than the term hands-on healing suggests, and that was really the aha moment where I thought, okay, this fits right in with what a lot of higher side guests talk about. There is something there when it comes to strengthening your ability to clearly visualize things and your meditation practice, your magical rituals, whichever you want to do or both, and then getting tangible, real-world results. Obviously, I don't know exactly how it works, but each guest we have that has some new approach to this realm gets us closer to understanding it, right? So I loved it, and I think he's a fun guy on air, knows his material well, and hopefully you were entertained and maybe even motivated to dig deeper. I am meaning to get the audio CD and really put some effort into it, but I do think a person can put two and two together just with what they heard today and start experimenting whenever they like. And this is just a good goal-forming practice anyway. I know a lot of people who aren't happy in their current place in life, but they have no goals or plans for fixing it. They might have watched nine hour-long episodes of Westworld, but when you ask them what they want out of their life, you get a blank stare. You're never going to make a bad situation better if you're not giving it your conscious attention, and maybe even the unconscious's attention. So think deeply about what you want, picture it, and start moving towards it, because I think the healing stuff is great, but I'm kind of more interested in the mechanism itself and these other applications of it. And even if you try this and you find that it, quote, doesn't work, are you really going to be mad about taking the time to define your goals? Wouldn't you be a little bit better off anyway? I really do think our subconscious wants to help us manifest reality. It's sitting right there, just being underutilized. And maybe other spirits are too, just waiting in the wings. But you have to do that little bit of preliminary work to engage those things. So all that said, I do have a couple of announcements now that we're two hours deep into this thing. Smart way to communicate with an audience, right? But number one, listeners sometimes ask me about real meat space meetups or some type of higher side event. And I think we're going to test the waters a little bit. I'm actually going to be out in Denver this weekend to hang out with a couple of friends of mine, one of them being Kyle, who longtime Hireside listeners should remember. Of course, he recently joined me on the three-hour Q&A show I put up for Plus People last week. It's his birthday, and we're going to be drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and going deep down the rabbit hole pretty much all weekend. But on Friday specifically, January 20th, motherfucking inauguration day, we're letting any local Hireside chatters know that we will be at one of my favorite Denver hangouts, a place called Mario's Double Daughters, if you want to come out and say hey. We'll be there at 9 o'clock, probably hang out for a couple hours and just see if anyone comes out. It's not a big deal, I'm not speaking or anything, I won't have a table, I'm not even telling them we're going to be there. Super casual. 
I wouldn't expect a ton of people, but it does seem like we've had a few confirmations via Facebook already. So we'll see how crazy it gets. So there it is. We're going to test the higher side clout. You can find out what I look like, I guess, from Facebook if you need to. And just find me. Come on up and say, hey, don't make it weird. I'm sure we'll all have a great time. And I hope to see you there. Also, the Plus Forum is under construction. We're in the middle of porting over to a much more robust forum platform. And the new rule going forward so that we can increase participation on those forums is going to be that if you sign up for THC Plus, you're going to get a Plus Show login, of course, and then a lifetime forum login. So even if you just sign up for a couple of months, listen to a few shows that you were interested in, and then cancel, you'll lose access to the show, but you'll always be able to participate in the higher side forums. I think that's a nice little bonus. And it's having a healthy amount of plus memberships that allows me to do these things and make the experience better overall. I did just put a lot of effort into revamping the t-shirts and launching the higher side clothing so I could be putting out a better product there. Super happy with how that's gone. I think the designs are really amazing and rival pretty much any t-shirt brand's designs that's out there. And I can say that without being a pompous asshole because I didn't do the artwork. I can't draw anything. I just think it's awesome. So there's that. But I am now putting a good chunk of money into rebuilding a better forum. And I've got quite a few other lofty goals and ideas for this thing. So please sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus if you appreciate what I do. I say this all the time, but we tip waiters five bucks for a one hour meal. And that's all I ask for access to literally everything I do. I don't try to sell you too hard. I usually let the free show portion go well over an hour. I try to be pretty cool with all this stuff. And I just hope that you'll be cool back. And then I can continue to make improvements when I have that financial fuel in the tank. As for today's plus show, anyone who heard the first hour can probably guess where we went in the second. But we got deeper into the method Dr. Bankston has come up with and how it's been applied. Just like his work as a whole gives us insight into the phenomenon itself and what's going on, getting into the details of the individual studies he's done and the different applications and trials they've had, it all helps to get your mind around what I think is a fundamental aspect of reality that we either forgot or have been misdirected from. Who knows how developed this was in the past? We have indications that the ancients had some knowledge of this stuff, but who knows how far it could really go if it got the right attention in the modern world. So if you'd like to hear more of today's chat or any of the several hundred I've done at this point, sign up at the thehiresidechatsplus.com. And if you're in the Denver area on Inauguration Day, come out to Mario's Double Daughters at 9pm and let's rage. That's it for your humble host this week. We're getting closer all the time, but now it's your move, Keepers of the Consciousness Secrets. Your fucking move.